Soldier White uses to prop the empire you up. You bought the binary, you rendered under Caesar. All cause your cathedrals needed more cedar. You sold another flavor, a seat at the table. All for the major goal to hold the scrolls in your favor. Share gospel with the slaves with precision and arrows with a six. Adam Levine's kind of shit, huh? I just saw a, a new, uh, an article in which he had an interview and he said, quote, um, let's quote it verbatim. He says, quote, I'm sad that bands don't exist anymore. Hmm. Adam Levine, bands exist. What are you saying? Adam Levine fucking sucks, huh? Uh... I just read an article where Stereo Gum reported on Adam Levine reporting uh, being on an interview for Apple Music Radio or some shit like that. And he was just, you know, pining and longing and being all uh, uh, sad that there are no bands anymore. And I'm like, Adam Levine? Adam Levine, there's bands. There's a lot of bands. What do you mean there's no bands anymore? He quote, literally he says, it's... It's funny, when the first Maroon 5 album came out, there were still other bands. I feel like there aren't bands anymore, you know? Then he goes on to say, that's the kind of thing that makes me sad, is that they were just bands. There's no bands anymore. I feel like <laughs> they're a dying breed. Uh, Adam Levine's dumb, maybe? Adam Levine's idiot? Adam Levine no brain? So dumb. Adam Levine is so whack. Adam Levine looks like a kind, like the, like he went into a tattoo shop and he's like, hey man, you know, you know how there are some guys who look like they have two tattoos? Make me look like a guy who has tattoos. And then he just got the most generic shit on his body. And then he, uh, then he looks all hardcore, but when you look really close, he's just like, is that, is that a, is that a popsicle on your, on your neck? Or whatever. I don't know if he has a popsicle on his neck, but he just like he looks like a guy with tattoos, and then he goes, "I am in misery." Come on, man. How you how you gonna say there's no real bands? Anyway, I needed to warm up my voice, so I just shat into your ears. Mm, whatever. I'm not taking that back. I won't run it back. But this is the. <laughs> This is episode six, and at this point, I'd, I honestly, I don't even, I didn't plan on making a whole 10 episodes. I sort of half-assed, like committed to 10 episodes, and then now we're at six, so this is halfway. We've just crossed the half over, halfway mark, and I'm, I think I want to do another, another chunk of episodes, and I want to talk about, I want to talk about leftism, but we'll see. I don't even know. This is a one-man show, essentially. It's Lent, and I'm not doing memes. And so my attention has been on uh, doing actual pastor stuff. But, uh, yeah, I don't know. Maybe I'll do some more. Maybe I won't. Who, who cares, man? Anyway, episode six. I'm calling this one... The Marvel Avengers Age of Ultra Conservative Southern Baptist Religious Rightron. Yeah, it's a good one. It's a good title. Because I've been shouting into the void of 
the internet on the podcast world for six episodes. And we're at the point where we're going to talk about, I think one of the most, or one of the least understood, but one of the most important aspects of the white evangelical hellscape, which is the religious right. Um, a, a few episodes ago, I think, I totally messed up on uploading episodes many times, but a couple episodes ago, I mentioned that an episode that's going to talk about abortion and opposition to abortion, it would seem like it would go on the section with sexual purity and patriarchy and, you know, purity culture. And I think it certainly could go there. You can make that argument there. But I think for this episode, we'll be exploring abortion within the broader pushback against integration of white and black students. So this is for the single issue voters who are absolutely not fucking listening to this podcast. But... Uh, there are very many Christian single-issue voters who are voting like, yeah, God told me that if I don't vote for this, if I, if I vote for abortion, then I'm going to, I'm going to, I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. what the, I don't know. I, I don't even know what accent that was. But if, if you're one of those God tell me to do, uh, to vote against abortion, if, if that's you, then this is why your take on abortion and voting is the low road into bad town. Uh, is no good. But first, we have to address a nom de guerre that I've been throwing around, which is uh, the religious right, which you may have heard before. So I want to get into a little bit of where that comes from. If you've ever wondered what it meant or where it, what its history is, here's why the religious right entered into our uh, language bank uh, as a sort of jerry-rigged wish.com avengers team of conservative right-wing protestant ministers starting in the carter and reagan years before reagan and carter really it wasn't obvious that conservative christians should be blindly republican now it's the fucking kool-aid you need to drink in order to get jesus blessings from a pastor named jeff or some shit talking about his hot wife the story of the religious right in the 1980s is misunderstood typically as a as like this noble lord of the rings style battle of re reproductive choice and the protection of life and it brought religious conservatives into alliance with a republican party to just sort of vibe like two missionary kids at a camp staff meet and greet, just trying to out missionary each other with all the cool things they did in Laos or some shit. Uh, the historian Randall Balmer has shown that the foundations of the religious right in opposition to abortion is a pure myth. In the 90s, Heritage Foundation co-founder Paul Weyrich actually admitted to Bomer that the idea to take up abortion came late in the 70s, years after Roe v. Wade, when religious right activists needed a cause with mo more long-term viability than segregated schools, which was dying out in the public political uh, uh, theater. So not after Roe v. Wade in 1973, but way later. Wayrick said abortion was actually suggested by what he said, quote, an unknown voice on some conference call in some unknown year. It was a sort of, oh, end quote. It was a sort of flippant gimmick fueled by careless misogyny and not really concerned for the fetus. So it's, it's absolutely a grift. The abortion myth was a grift for segregationist desire, which was failing in the public political uh, field. I keep not knowing what to put after public political Field? Theater? Whatever. Um, which means that even though it feels like it stems from misunderstood sexuality, uh, the discussion of abortion actually belongs here and its action on education more than it be belongs in a section on sexuality and gender. 
Uh, the sort of buzzword phrase pro-life was clearly a metonym, just like religious freedom was a metonym for segregation. And we see this in the battle clearly for tax exemptions. Bob Jones University had been a stalwart uh, of stronghold of Christian conservatism for a, a half a century by the time it came under fire as a segregated university, which threatened its tax-exempt status. A series of events linked the integration of public schools to the legal status of Christian universities. After Brown v. Board, states were given leniency in their integration timelines. Time, essentially. As Mississippi integrated in the 1969 to 1970 school year, within two years of integration in this county in Mississippi, there were zero white students remaining in the county schools. In, in state schools. So a group of parents sued to deny three, three of these K through 12 schools tax exempt status, arguing that segregated universities or ac academies weren't charitable and couldn't receive the tax exempt status. The resulting case, Green v. Connolly, continued a domino effect running from Brown v. Board to the Reaganite religious right era. In 1971, the Supreme Court affirmed a district court's recent decision on the Green v. Connolly case instead uh, 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 saying that the Internal Revenue Code shouldn't give charitable status to segregated private schools. This was at the secondary, the primary, and the high school level right now, but not yet at the university level. So the court was upholding a position the IRS had already announced in a two-page ruling that launched conservatives into a revolt. So it, they were only upholding a position that the IRS had already uh, uh, held. The IRS sent its first inquiry to Bob Jones University in 1970, at which point the school denied entry to African Americans. The changing legal landscape forced the university through a series of stalling tactics, uh, such as admitting a black student who is an employee to a short-lived stint as a part-time student. It experimented with admitting black students who were married and enforced rules against interracial, interracial dating until the year 2000. The university lost its tax-exempt tax status in January 1976, and that moment was a flashpoint for conservative Christians because segregation was no longer viable as a long-term cause. It, uh, another issue is needed. So in the rise of the religious right, Green v. Colony was the motive while Roe v. Wade was the cover. In 1972 and the 1976 elections, Democrats were actually slightly more pro-life than Republicans, a fact which ceased to be true in all elections after, but one, after 1980. Early, Christian, uh, early Christians came up in uh, opposition to abortion, like the, the early Christian opposition to abortion was primarily Catholic and not Protestant. Even the ultra-conservative Southern Baptist Convention, my, my people's, adopted a resolution in 1971 supporting abortion access in at least some cases. And just a side note, I'll be using the acronym SBC for Southern Baptist Convention for the next few minutes. Shout out to the conference within which I am a pastor. Just as Roe v. Wade, uh, the Roe v. Wade decision, uh, just after the Roe v. Wade decision, the Texas pastor and former SBC president, W.A. Chriswell, told Christianity Today that it wasn't up to him, quote, I have always felt that it was only after a child was born and had a separate life from its mother that it became an individual person, and it has always therefore seemed to me that what is best for the mother and for the future should be allowed, end quote. So this is a, a, a very, very prominent 
ultra-conservative view in the 1970s. So this is an SBC pastor giving the support to the pro-choice position. It would be a mistake to say, as too many claim, that Baptists were pro-choice and then turned pro-life Simple as that. But there was a significant ideological shift at the decade's end, and we have to note that. And the SBC shift mirrored the broader conservative about face on church-state separation over the course of a few interesting years. Baptists are particularly interesting here as a congregation that traditionally supported the separation of church and state. And I'm using Baptists as my example partly because I'm arguing that today's white evangelicalism simply didn't exist fully yet in the 1970s, and Baptists would be the closest thing we have to the mindset or political disposition of what would become white evangelicalism. This is in many senses the most independent and conservative crowd. Ooh, got a text. Um, after all, the Southern Baptists literally started off as a breakaway group around the Civil War era as a church for Baptists who wanted to keep owning slaves. So this is very near and dear to the American uh, evangelical um, brain. And it's a very, <clears throat> even today, it's still a very conservative group. But in the 70s, there was this cascade of evolution on issues regarding school prayer and abortion. So here's the history of that change in particular. The Southern Baptist Joint Committee for Public Affairs supported the Supreme Court's ruling against prayer time in schools in a court case called McCullen v. Board of Education back in 1948. The SBC passed resolutions against funding for public schools for public funds for religious schools over and over and over again. Between then, between then and the end of World War II and uh, uh, Roe, Right? So they're, step, they're supporting these efforts that keep the church and state separate fully. Uh, it's fully supported this establishment clause until something changed. It was completely for the separation of church and state until something happened. The fundamentalist wing grabbed power in the SBC in the 1970s. It's actually due to the fundamentalist takeover and purge of moderates that we have data to document the shift because they were interrogating each other especially after Richard Land took charge of the Christian Life Commission, which is now called the Ethics and Religious Liberty Commission in 1988. The Christian Life Commission began using questionnaires on the topics of public funding for religious schools. It's an amendment for school prayer and abortion. Uh, and there was a dramatic increase in support for tax credits for religious schools in and among the Baptist pastors in the 1980s. The SBC came to six resolutions offering a qualified support for at least some abortion rights that stretched from 1971 to 79, at which point they stopped entirely in 1979. No more caveat. And there's just so much history. We could explore for further context in this decade, but we just don't have enough time. So one way to think of this is an opposition between two camps. One camp believed the conservative church was best served by a strict separation of church and state. While theocrats, which we had mentioned in past uh, podcasts, were winning, who won the fight, believed that theological interests were best served by rooting those in secular law, rooting those interests in secular law. So opinions on abortion were fairly quiet between 1973 and 78 and shifted dramatically in the decade's final two years. The SBC elected its first adamantly anti-choice president, Adrian Rogers, in 1979, and it adopted anti-choice resolution. Its first anti-choice resolution uh, that was very clear in the following year was, uh, it was adopted in 1980. 
It was in concert with Francis Schaeffer, whose warnings of secular humanism would gain wide audience in America. The Heritage Foundation co-founder Paul Weyrich helped to galvanize a Protestant coalition around abortion. Many early evangelical activists joined the cause. Tim LaHaye of the Left Behind series launched Californians for Biblical Morality. Robert Grant founded American Christian Cause, which published what he called, quote-unquote, moral report cards for politicians. And these were spread out and distributed in churches prior to elections for uh, judging their moral report card. The the college ministry campus crusade for, for Christ founder Bill Bright joined forces with the Heritage Foundation along with Schaefer, the future Surgeon General C. Everett Koop, and produced, uh, produced an anti-choice film series, quote, Whatever Happened to the Human Race? Liberty University founder Jerry Falwell published the newspaper Moral Majority, the Moral Majority Report. Falwell's Moral Majority was the base from which the anti-choice religious right grew. But in 1978, his focus was the ch- uh, of his focus was the child in the school more than the child in the womb. After that, it changed. Christians, he warned, must be politically aware of government forces, which quote affect the vitality and very existence of our churches and Christian schools, end quote. Nevertheless, this was the same year in which Falwell proclaimed his opposition to reproductive choice for the very first time. Late in the 70s here, his Avengers team vehemently opposed the Equal Rights Amendment as well, the ERA. And since Falwell believes equality between men and women would destroy the traditional family, it made sense that he could not believe in equal rights for women. The pro-life moniker worked in 1978, an Iowa, in, an Iowa incumbent Democratic senator who is overwhelmingly projected to win re-election lost to a Republi- Republican running on the pro-life message. It was shocking for Iowans. Two years later, the moral majority proved successful at defeating Carter and installing Reagan on the very same issue. The Johnson Amendment was nearly three decades old by this point. But this archaic role ostensibly prohibiting nonprofits from endorsing candidates couldn't keep up. Uh, uh, the right chose to forget how tax exemptions were revoked under Nixon originally. Nixon the Republican. By the time Pat Robertson and Ralph Reed launched the Christian Coalition in 1989, everyone took for granted that they had always felt great concern for the fetus. So this was a dramatic sea change. In just a period of 1978 to 1980, evangelicals became fucking gorillas in the mist and then shrouded themselves in pro-life rhetoric and the Christian right was born. White evangelicalism was born, and it it was more shrouded in the abortion myth as the white child in the school was rhetorically eclipsed by the child in the womb, and this became the like the albatross for uh, Christian right. So, back to Bob Jones University uh, losing their tax exemption tax exemption status. And his case reached the Supreme Court during the Reagan administration with only one dissenter. The Supreme Court finally settled the matter and ruled against the school in May of 1983. Segregation was no longer an option for a school that wanted to remain tax exempt. In a perverse twist, the sole, uh, the sole uh, dissenter in that case, William Rehnquist, was rewarded when Reagan promoted him to Chief Justice soon after. However, the damage was already done and the threat was clear enough to conservatives today. White uh, students overrepresent in private school enrollment in 43 states. 
Today, the strongest predictor of white private enrollment is the proportion of black students in the area bar none. Bar fucking none. Public school enrollment in white populations remains high when the ratio of people of color in the area is negligible. In the domain of education, white flight and alternative avenues of knowledge remain inseparable. And this is the lesson. This emerging new phase of white evangelicalism was so blatantly patriarchal that it could casually strip women of reproductive choice, all as a part of a coordinated effort to conceal white flight from the school system. And regardless of why people feel this way or or that way about abortion today, now you know the roots of anti-choice. It's very split on this subtle matter. In the next episode, we're going to be talking about um, purity culture, and not in the sort of way that you'd expect purity culture to be talked about, but we're going to be talking about the rise of purity culture and maybe some of its roots. That's my episode for today is a lot of dates and a lot of history, but part of tracking why evangelicalism is, is standing on really thin stilts is to be able to see its history and be able to make uh, judgments on, wow, we are not at all in control of what is going on in the evangelical milieu. I am inheriting um, very, very tainted uh, foodstuffs, and I'm consuming it. So we can stop or we can not. That's it. That's all I got for this podcast. And thank you so much for listening. Maybe we'll talk about uh, capitalism after episode 10. Maybe, I don't know what I'll do. Maybe I'll stop. Anyway, fucking burn Babylon down, so peace. Hey folks, so technically the episode's over, but I'm not gone yet. I'm just kidding. I'm not going to do that character. I'm just going to be regular Ben Joe. <laughs> um, yeah, so I wanted to, the, the, this episode was a lot shorter than I had ex- anticipated. So I wanted to provide a little bit more content. I'm, I want to work on more, uh, more episodes of the Scuba cast in, in the pipeline or maybe 10 more episodes, but talking about um, leftist politics and capitalism and the Christian option there. Uh, I, I still want to approach it with the same kind of revilement and disgust that some part of me actually genuinely feels, um, but always with the purpose um, of... Re- bringing people to connect once again and people who may have been feeling disconnected from something that they had 
that they feel some sort of really strong pull to. I know so many people who are uh, either church curious or have been part of the church, but hate the way that it's so that it's structured and that the church has all but pushed them away. Uh, yet they can't quit it. And so my goal is to uh, playfully. Uh, it doesn't seem playful to a lot of people, but playfully um, in, uh, invite to the conversation the real brass tacks of what's going on in the material world. And so part of that is addressing uh, communism <laughs> and and leftist politics and capitalism and what that might mean for the Christian. Is there a room for that in our tradition or is capitalism the way of the world? And so I wanted to talk some shit about that eventually. But also, I just wanted to plug a couple of things, like my actual Instagram. I hardly ever try and focus myself in any real way. I'm always kind of dispersing into a character, which is kind of scary. But um, uh, <laughs> yeah, I guess it is kind of scary. But um, uh, the Scubula Post, Scubula Posting is uh, run by me, Benjo Razan. Uh, my Instagram is benjorazan.jpg. It's a little bit of the same that you get at Scubla Posting, but uh, some parts of my regular life, I have a poetry Instagram that I also have. It's but with feelings. So if you are silly enough to listen to the end of this podcast, you have access to that. You just have to request it. All of that is po poetry and food. You wouldn't even be able to tell that the person who posts Scubla Posting is the person who writes that poetry. Um and somewhere on the on the internet, I have a blog that I won't be sharing. I populate it, but I won't be sharing. It's literally just for me. Uh, maybe one day I'll get the gumption to do that. Um, but until then, I wanted to read y'all uh, something that I wrote last year in September during uh, the you know the middle of the coronavirus pandemic. We're still very much in it, but last year was. Uh, I was thinking a lot about pastoral vocation and what that might mean uh, for the least of these in our society. It was originally um, uh, titled uh, Preferring the Poor, but this one is titled um, From September of Last Year, A Word for Stephen. The little uh, blurb at the bottom is this was tucked away on a secret blog on some corner of the internet, but I'm pulling it up here in light of some conversations I've had with friends concerning our neighbors. Really, I've, I was moved to share this from the secret blog because of a conversation I had with some friends who work with homeless. And it seemed like there was a disconnect between the work that they were doing and the actual people they were serving that somehow it was about doing the work and not about the people. And uh, in its own way, a rejection of the material conditions that put people on the streets. So I wanted to share this here. It's just a quick little reflection. I was encouraged to share it on my main page. Uh, this is my indirect way of doing that, and maybe I'll post it eventually. Uh, sweet, I'll just get going. Stephen comes and goes around the church where I work. Mornings find him wrapped up in a sleep on the threshold of our front entrance on the steps. I let him in so he can rest on a pew when no one's around, uh, because our church is slightly warmer than the streets outside. He has a sweet and homely smile and a kindly way about him. Uh, 
It's a pleasure to give him a cup of coffee I'd made and sometimes the occasional banana if I'd packed it. On a recent morning, I had some time, so I made a breakfast sandwich before work. We divvied up our egg and cheese sandwiches, split the coffee, and talked. He told me he feared the coronavirus because finding food and shelter was getting harder. I doled out what little medical knowledge I had. No, Stephen, you don't get stomach cramps from it. Just watch for a dry cough, watch out for aches and a fever. If things go on much longer, he told me, he's going to have to start stealing again. He's scared of getting caught, though. Suddenly I felt guilty. I had complained so much about being homebound, as with many others. Stephen cries because he's afraid of actually being locked up. We offer few guarantees to the poor, but you can be sure that we will keep the prisons open for them. Liberation theology's biggest doctrinal success was getting the church to embrace the language of the preferential option for the poor, as Pope John Paul II wrote in Solicitude Rei Socialis. A consistent theme of Catholic social teaching is the option or love of preference for the poor. The preference must be expressed in worldwide dimensions, embracing the immense numbers of the hungry, the needy, the homeless, those without medical care, and those without hope. Pope Francis continues to teach this in Laudato Si. In the present condition of global society where injustices abound and growing numbers of people are deprived of basic human rights and are considered expendable, the principle of the common good immediately becomes a summons to solidarity and a preferential option for the poorest of our brothers and sisters. Solidarity is necessary for a flourishing community when it comes to the least well-off. However, we need more because they need more. The preferential option for the poor is solidarity, intensified and focused on the marginalized, the impoverished, and the rejected. The preferential option for the poor is based on the simple words of Jesus, blessed are the poor, and whatever you have done for the least of these. Jesus so clearly prefers the poor that he dwelt with fishermen and prostitutes in a destitute and oppressed imperial outpost. His incarnation was an act of solidarity with all of humanity. His decision to travel with social outcasts, a refusal to conform to this world's preferences. Christian solidarity is a social political principle, but more importantly, it's a dogmatic claim. God incarnates with the poor. Jesus lived in solidarity with the poor in Palestine. He still lives in solidarity with Stephen and all the poor in this time of pestilence and inequality. God has a fresh and special memory for the smallest and most forgotten. These are the words of Bartolomé de las Casas, a Dominican friar who advocated for indigenous rights in the 1500s. They are expression of the lasting concern of the body of Christ which enacts God's memory by living the love of the poor. Fray Bartolomé came to understand God's memory by preaching among and preaching on behalf of the indigenous people of the Americas. Fray Bartolomé could not forget the suffering inflicted on the indigenous and he would not let the Spanish forget it either. He worked on behalf of the smallest and most forgotten as a way of enacting God's special memory. For Fray Bartolomé, Jesus is the incarnate sign that God never forgets. The divine remembrance of the poor requires that we model ourselves on God's memory. The preferential option for the poor may be at the heart of Christian reflections and solidarity, but it is far from the hearts of too many Americans. 
In the U.S., we don't have memory for the smallest, and the poor are always forgotten. We have embraced a preferential option for the rich and against the poor. In in 2017, we cut taxes for those who have more. In 2020, we cut food stamps for those who have less. We can't eliminate food stamps. When we can't eliminate food stamps, we swamp the poor with requirements to make it too hard to get those food stamps. Meanwhile, Fox News runs stories about poor folks buying lobster as a joke. Are we all supposed to be horrified about that? Maybe the implication is that the poor shouldn't eat lobster and they should get gruel. And now with coronavirus sweeping the world, you can be sure that Stephen will be forgotten. We may need to bail out Boeing. I don't know. But what about refugees in internment camps? We're shipping them out from our country faster. Are we rallying funds for clinics that service lower income communities? No. Hospitals in poor communities are closing faster, in fact. Are we taking steps to prevent the return of famine in the developing world? Are we remembering the smallest and most forgotten? No. We're instituting food stamp reductions while liquidity is pumped into the stock market. Worse than forgetting the poor is acting as if the poor, as if it is the poor who are exploiting us. There's a growing chorus of, of voices that insists that Americans, quote, the well-off ones at least, are suckers being taken advantage of by immigrants and the urban poor. We heap burdens onto them to make sure they don't get a little extra. We demand they work in case they might get that welfare check when they are undeserving. We impose strict policies in case someone gets extra food stamps. Money is constantly flowing up and we celebrate and lock up people like Stephen for shoplifting. At my church, there's growing talk of what to do about the vagrants. People point out Stephen to me and warn me, quote, if you have one, you'll end up with an encampment of them. They're all over L.A. now, end quote. I smile awkwardly and tell them how kind he is. They respond that you never know when homeless people are going to snap. I refrain from telling them that the same is true of me. A woman with flies swarming her swollen ankles has taken to sleeping under the tree in front of the left gate. The church doors are locked now and a fence is going up around the garden. The hope is that the vagrants will move on. We'll just go away if we pay them no mind. At yet, I've seen a priest lay hands from the church next door on a homeless man in, a, uh, in blessing. The sisters there are working hard to get the unhoused a home. The woman with flies asks me if I have extra socks for her. I do, but only because a choir member put together care packages with socks, toothbrushes, and toothpastes and granola bars, yet that person won't come down to the shelter. I see the tensions between preference for and against the poor at work in my church and in myself. I see the struggle between a heterodox Christianity and an orthodox Christianity expressed in offense and in an act of blessing. The preference against the poor is heterodoxy at work. It prioritizes the rich while emphasizing merit. We can see it enacted in the Varsity Blues college admission scandal where people with means paid for their kids to get into college. Merit, it turns out, has a price tag. Perhaps the preferential option uh, of the poor is so unpopular because too many American Christians believe only in winning. If you don't win in life, then we are against you. When Christ says, blessed are the poor, we punish them. When the, when the church preaches a preference for the poor, we let their unemployment aid run out. In, religion, in a religion of unmerited grace, we celebrate, quote, uh, parentheses, supposedly merited wealth. While God remembers the smallest and most forgotten, we abandon them to internment camps and to abortion clinics in underfunded parts of the city. A crisis can teach us what we really value. In the, area of pe- in, in the era of pestilence, we are finding that what we really value is money. 
not Stephen, not the refugee, not the unborn, not the poor. If we don't value them, we don't really value Christ all that much. As our conversation wound down, Stephen spoke of a friend of his down by the grocery store. They had been talking. Stephen told him, quote, I wish I could beg. You're doing it right. I just can't do that, end quote. He told me he was grateful for the little money I gave him. It would save him from shoplifting that day. He asked me about my friend and finished his coffee. I know it's wrong to steal. That's what my parents told me, he said, looking down. But still, I'd rather steal than beg. All I can do is beg for Stephen as too many Christians impose their preferential option against the poor during this pestilence and reject solidarity with anyone who doesn't look like us. I know God remembers Stephen. I ask that you remember him too. Remember the smallest and most forgotten. Obey Christ's words. Live in solidarity. Prefer the poor over the rich. We both had to get going. Me back to my home. Stephen to the streets. As we parted, we couldn't hug, so instead we awkwardly bumped elbows and said goodbye.